This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 25th of November 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look through the week's news and culture with author David Badanis. Then... What we did, we did honestly and, and uh, you know, with pride and, and the awards just came by themselves. And it was interesting to say, to, to make the decision to, you know, take the step and uh, give it back. Monocle Radio's Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay, visits the first restaurant in Ljubljana to earn a Michelin star and the first to give it away. Plus, to celebrate their 10-year anniversary, Hattingley Valley, an English wine company, have released a limited edition Magnum. We're happy to help them out by having a tasting. First, though, here's the news. Qatar, which mediated a four-day truce deal between Israel and Hamas, says 13 Israelis have been released so far, some with dual nationality, as well as 10 Thais and a Philippine national. 39 Palestinian women and children detainees were released from Israeli jails. The freed Israeli hostages included four children accompanied by four family members and five elderly women. More prisoners are expected to be exchanged today. Ukraine's capital city, Kyiv, took the brunt of what the country's air force described as Russia's largest drone attack of the war today, leaving five people wounded as the continuing rumble of air defences and explosions woke residents. Ukraine's energy ministry said nearly 200 buildings in the capital, including 77 residential ones, have been left without power as a result of the attack. And China's military will begin combat training activities today on its side of the border with Myanmar, a day after a convoy of trucks carrying goods into the neighbouring Southeast Asian nation went up in flames. The incident came amidst insecurity concerns in China, whose envoy met top officials in Myanmar's capital for talks on border stability after recent signs of a rare strain in their ties. And that's Humanical Radio News. Hello, hello, and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I am Georgina Godwin, and I'm joined in the studio by the author, David Badanis. Good morning to you, David. Good morning. Uh, now, we were trying to figure out how many books you've actually written, and that's different from how many you've published, because as you point out, there are some you've written that really should never see the light of day. This is entirely true. Authors need to be wildly overconfident. Now, it turns out politicians need to be wildly overconfident, but when I make mistakes, all I do is bore my agent and publisher. When politicians of wild overconfidence make mistakes, well, that's the world we live in today. Absolutely. And talking about that, of course, we've just seen the British budget come out. uh, And it was so interesting to watch the reaction in different parts of the press. So you've got the the sort of right-wing press going, yeah, this is fantastic. And the rest going, hang on, you're just creating long-term problems. Correct. And, And sometimes you feel that if the budget was reversed, they would, we know their responses in advance. They say in the US Navy, the the Navy 
is happy to say, the answer is send in a carrier uh, task force. What's the question? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, look, let's go on to things that nobody really understands. Uh, this is a story that came out in The Guardian, and it's about a high-energy particle that's been detected falling to Earth. Now, that in itself doesn't sound so exciting, but you can explain why it really is. Totally. So we think that the Earth is a pretty gentle place. There's trees and there's Bambi and there's gentle winds and and water. And the worst thing is like, oh, at the local Starbucks, I can't get a really good espresso these days anymore. Well, but first world problems, huh? There's a lot more to Serious first world problems. You're quite right. And Monocle covers it very well. But even the uh, magnitude of our problems, uh, temperature fluctuations would be severe on the planet and could be terrible for life. But it's kind of limited to a small uh, part. We forget that we're surrounded by a vast amount of space. We really are this tiny little thing. And occasionally that stuff from the vast amount of space hits Earth. 66 million years ago, a little bit of it hit, wiped out the dinosaurs and allowed uh, our ancestors, the mammals, to sort of take over. Well, recently in North America, people detected a particle coming from a part of the universe that seemed to be pretty much empty. That was weird. And there's two possibilities. Either it came from like another galaxy and some sort of star exploding, which we could understand, and it curved around and seemed to come from empty space, or it really did come from an empty space, which suggests that there's something deep going on, invisibly in empty space, that we don't understand and are just getting a little hint of. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, but what I mean, what, what are the implications for us here on our planet? Uh, somebody once asked uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, what could be the advantages of the first hot air balloons? He said, what's the what are the implications, the advantages of a newborn child? It's all potential. So back in the Middle Ages, if people saw static electricity, you take off a flax and tunic at night and you see these little sparks, people would have no idea where it came from. We know there's an entire force of electromagnetism behind it. And in our centuries, we've been able to uh, harness it for radio and television and and the Internet and stuff. So this might be what we saw with this high-energy particle. It might be a a hint of something which in the future we'll take for granted and use, possibly for social media of a form we can't imagine. Mm, mm. Are you a fan of Douglas Adams? Uh, I've enjoyed Douglas Adams, including his great ability to procrastinate. (laughs) Yes, I I love that. But well, on uh, Meet the Writers tomorrow, we're we're, uh, interviewing a man who's who's brought together like a lot of Adams's works, a lot of it that's not been seen before. It's a wonderful book called Forty Two, which, of course, as you know, is the meaning of life, according to Douglas Adams. A wonderful man, and I love the title of one of his books called The Fourth in the Increasingly Ill-Named Trilogy. Um, But, of course, that's the kind of thing he was talking about, what happens in space and also what happens here and what we don't understand about things that we actually do interact with all the time. Now, that is the subject of uh, the winner uh, of the Royal Society Science Book Prize. Uh, The book is called An Immense World uh, and it is by Mr. Yang. I've just... uh, Ed. Ed. Mm -hmm. Ed Yong. Ed Yong has has just won the Royal Society Science Book Prize. Uh, An Immense World is an extraordinary work. Uh, Tell us more. So it turns out we're used to uh, seeing things and hearing things and touching things, and we kind of assume that the colors we see is pretty much everything that's there. We often forget that our brain is entirely dark. It's inside our skull. There's no light there. Everything that we think is happening is just what our senses tell us. Well, Yang realized that uh, animal, many people have realized, but he beautifully described how different animals and... um, uh, 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 um, 
uh, all sorts of living matter, senses in ways that we don't. So honeybees, for example, can see colors that we can't. Uh, dogs, famously, can hear sounds that we can't. Now, you might sometimes think, well, do those things really exist? And the answer is yes. They're surrounding us all the time. I'm sitting in a studio in London, and there are sounds and electromagnetic rays that are invisible to me. If my ears were better or my eyes were better, uh, we'd be able to tell. It's possible in the future we might be a little bit more like that. So, for example, if I get a hearing aid, I could set it at normal hearing, or I could set it for maybe super hearing. Same thing if I get um, a contact lenses. Maybe in the future we'll be able to switch on telephoto when we want and switch back when we don't want. Extraordinary. And this book also tells us that humans have possess, humans possess more formidable senses than we actually realise. Our eyesight is good of course, killer flies and birds of prey are better. Our ability to detect sounds, as you say, uh, fine. You could boost it with your hearing aid. Uh, but owls, and particularly cats, hear much better. Owls surprise me. Have you ever seen an owl's ear? They look very odd. The owl ears are fabulous. And the fur on the owls, some of it, the fur and also the face plates are curved in a strange way. They sort of funnel the sound into the ear. And also those soft, fluffy feathers uh, so they can come in really quietly. Owls are very good at stealing food from people and sometimes attacking because they tend to come from behind when you don't see them and you really, really can't hear it. There's no flutter of sound. The original stealth animals. He talks a lot in this book about sensory pollution, uh, which I, I thought was really interesting. That The fact that, that actually, I mean, lights and sounds and all these things that are very, very intrusive uh, and reducing noise and light pollution is is not on the agenda anyway, the political agenda anyway. Real, and he says it should be. Yes, it's a real shame. There's a sort of an arrogance that if something doesn't bother us, it should be okay for the planet. And uh, luckily, there's been a, a, a good move in the past few generations to be considerate for the perspective of other living things. If we um, have... Have, uh, we know that if we're in a restaurant and somebody blares incredibly loud music, we can't have conversation. We're disoriented. Or if you're driving at night and somebody shines their bright lights into your eyes, you can't see what's going on. Well, when we put a huge amount of light on in a city, moths, which have been around for long before human beings evolved, uh, get disoriented. Mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of this book, I mean, obviously it's, it's fact, it's absolute kind of science. Um, but there's a new movie out which also says that it's fact. Uh, and it's really being disputed. This is the new Napoleon film. Ah, so it, 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 uh, first of all, I should say that the director is incredibly skilled at battle scenes, uh, and he's skilled at simple emotions, which he does really, really well. Uh, fear, tension. He's also a great director of women, uh, which is really impressive. You see it in um, the Alien film, and you see it uh, with uh, with Josephine in this film. And this is this is of course Ridley Scott. Yes, who, who I loved his his comment when historians questioned him. He said, "Well, were you there?" <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so I began by praising Ridley Scott. Now I'm going to not praise Ridley Scott. There's two sorts of errors you can make in historical films. One are trivial errors. If somebody is wearing a belt that was different from the ones that the Imperial Guards actually wore, that doesn't really matter. Unfortunately, in films today, uh, we usually can get those quite accurately. Although we weren't there ourselves, there's uh, photographs of paintings, there's uh, documentation. So usually historical films have those objects quite well done. You can film something at Versailles 
outside, and you can make sure that it looked pretty much the way it actually looked then. But that's just the surface. What counts more is underneath, if you get the personality right. Uh, people in Britain know there's many Hollywood films which describe a Britain that no person in Britain ever knows. There's cheerful cockneys and there's, there's this and that. And it's just, it's not the real Britain. Well, it seems from, uh, uh, I've spent a certain amount of time in the French archives and uh, reading French history. And the impression I get, although I've not seen the film and I'm very happy to be corrected, but many reviewers said not only he got the details right, but he missed the mood. This wasn't the character. Uh, there's entire films about uh, where you can see Winston Churchill played in a way that Winston Churchill just wasn't like that, even if somebody gets the accent right and they film it in Parliament. Mm. So it's a shame. Um, uh, it, it was a shame, I thought, when Scott said, um, oh, get a life or were you there? It's a kind of a defensive thing. You sort of owe an obligation to either get the tone right or say, not that this is based on true facts, but that it's totally made up. Mm. We see that in the TV series The Crown. Yeah, ab absolutely. I've just been watching that. Shh, I'm not meant to tell anybody that we've been watching. <laughs> Shh, it's okay to have some taste like that. Um, but of course, there is one moment in history that uh, that only happened 60 years ago and that many people, including you, remember. Uh, and that's the uh, assassination of JFK. Yes, America seemed really, really stable until that point. In fact, it wasn't stable. In the 1930s, it came extremely close to fascism. In the 1950s, there were wild uh, McCarthyist slurs. There had been assassinations of presidents uh, before, uh, um, uh, more than once. But in 1963, the U.S. be the world like a colossus. It had 40% or so of the entire world economy, which is incredible. And the president was young and handsome. He was the first one to use TV effectively. He had a famous debate against Richard Nixon when he was running for president in 1960. People who listened on the radio thought, oh, Nixon was an intelligent man and a skillful lawyer. He won the debate. People who watched it on TV, they couldn't remember the words, but they saw, damn, Kennedy looks good. He's a good looking man. Anyways, he was shot in the back of the head with a high-velocity bullet uh, more than once. Um, and it was uh, terrible. I was a seven-year-old boy. And I remember the shock. I also remember, why are my teachers crying? Teachers aren't supposed to cry. Mm. He represented a great deal of hope. Uh, historians have uh, shown that he was inadequate in many respects. He was unable to push civil rights as well as Johnson later did. It's ambiguous whether he really would have withdrawn from Vietnam or not. But he gave the notion of positivity. Uh, and at the beginning of his uh, uh, administration, he was a poor administrator. He didn't have experience. After the famous failed invasion of Cuba, he spoke with the previous president, uh, Eisenhower, who had a lot of experience, having run D-Day and stuff. And Eisenhower said to Kennedy, when you were debating this, did you have both sides meet in front of you to discuss it uh, in your presence so they you could hear their arguments? And he said, no. And Eisenhower looked at him and said, how could you possibly make a well-balanced decision without that? Mm -hmm. So Kennedy was on a learning curve. And um, when he was shot, America broke. It's interesting that you say he was shot more than once because, of course, that's at the heart of the debate. How many, how many shooters were there? How many shots happened? And uh, there's a new person who's just come out of somebody from ex-CIA going, yeah, we did it because he messed up Bay of Pigs and we didn't want him to, to withdraw from Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Oh, so when I said two shots, there was, uh, he, he was shot once in the body and once in the head. So, so that we know for certain. Um, uh, and unfortunately, uh, he, uh, he had some medical problems. He was on steroids and stuff. And he had a back brace which meant that when they were first shot, his body couldn't slump to the side. So he was a sitting target at a short distance for somebody who was trained in the Marines as a marksman. Um, so we know that there were at least that shots. Whether there were other shots, I'm not convinced. There's uh, 
Possibly, possibly not. He had a lot of enemies, but there was a big prohibition against uh, shooting a president. I suppose one of the interesting things was the uh, question of um, whether you would question the uh, the inquiry about it. Uh, Plato talked about the noble lie. People have to be able to pull together and believe in something for society to hold together. John F. Kennedy, for example, had lots of affairs. None of the White House correspondents reported it. That was private. He wasn't. You didn't share those sorts of things. Um, insider trading, for example, was allowed on Wall Street. But that was private. You didn't share that either. There was good and bad. After his death, again, it sort of broke open. Uh, privacy was sort of ended. And trust in government often justifiably uh, uh, decayed. Mm. So, David, I'm going to set you a little challenge here. I need you to seamlessly go from that uh, into an interview we have about a Michelin star in Ljubljana. It turns out what Kennedy would have loved was going to that restaurant because it would show, A, there's good food, B, there were no photographers there, and C, it would show that the ideals of uh, freedom, which is what he thought uh, capitalism was linked with, had succeeded. He would have been delighted that you could go there and have a restaurant making a profit. How's that? Funny you should say that, because now many chefs long for the recognition of a Michelin star. Not too many give them up once they've got them. But Jorg Zupan is one of the few. His restaurant, Artelier, won the first ever Michelin star in Slovenia's capital, Ljubljana. And earlier this year, he closed the venue and handed back the award. Now he's got a new venture on that same spot. After, or after, might not have a Michelin star, but it is bringing late-night dining to a city that's notoriously early to bed. Monocle's man in Ljubljana, Guy Delaunay, went to check it out. Welcome to After, smack in the middle of Ljubljana's old town, next to one of the great hotels of the city, the Union. And last time I was here, it was quite different. It was called Atelier. It was the first Michelin-starred restaurant in the city. And it has to be said, it was a lot quieter. My name's York Zupan, um, head chef, owner of After, former Atelier. There's enough uh, restaurants with the kind of concept that we had before. Enough in general in, in the world and enough in, in Slovenia, enough in Ljubljana. You mean the tasting menus? The tasting menus and the concept of the tasting menu is quite specific, I guess. We cook in the same way that we did before. We use the same techniques. We're trying to present the dishes in a different way. You know, it's not so theatrical as it was before because tasting menus, usually the experience that you want to get, I guess. It's like a theatre or a longer experience with things happening all the time. Here it's mostly about, you know, coming in, sitting down, ordering something to drink, something to eat, with your friends, with your... or not, even like, you know, there's a communal table, you can meet new people. This is kind of the uh, idea of the whole place. People getting together, knowing each other, being relaxed, having a good time, you know, no fuss. Good music, loud music, you know. The thing is, though, you had the first Michelin star in Ljubljana, yeah. and that's a big deal. So d did it feel like a big deal to let it go? For me personally, not so much, because even before with Atelier, we didn't, our main goal wasn't to achieve any accolades or, you know, awards or a, a red board on our doorstep or whatever. What we did, we did honestly and, and uh, you know, with pride and, and the awards just came by themselves. Um, it was interesting to say, to, to make the decision to, you know, take the step and like, give it back and, and 
you know. How, how did the conversation with Michelin go? There was no real conversation. We just, you know, we just decided what we decided. We let them know in, a, in an email. You know, they don't really ring you up and say, well, why did you, you know. This place has been transformed from what was a fairly mellow dining room in very understated tones of, of wood, not particularly posh, but still fine dining nonetheless, into something which feels a bit more pre or even post-club. Quite an industrial look to this place, all shades of muted blue and a rather banging sound system. I'm uh, Matthias Ivans. I'm co-owner. I'm York business partner. So whose idea was it to say goodbye to the first Michelin-starred restaurant in Ljubljana? It was a little bit shock. I was really, really very happy in 2020 when we got this Michelin star because when you when you do this business fine dining then always goal is Michelin star and when York first told me what do you think can we uh, change the concept and yes first shock I slept two nights maybe a little bit not so good but so how have you seen things change in in the time that you've been partnered with York and running Atelier and Breg how have you seen the whole scene in Slovenia in general but in Ljubljana in particular in general, you know maybe one of the reason uh, that we that we left the Michelin or Atelier is also that not enough Slovenian people like this kind of food this kind of experience you know, because we worked very good in the season, you know, we can sell maybe three times a day atelier. The other months, you know, it's not enough people. So you still think Ljubljana isn't really ready for Michelin stars? Maybe yes, maybe no, but I cannot uh, thinking about uh, that anymore. <laughs> Sounds like you're relieved. Yes. <laughs> So, this is very much an adventure for the moment. It seems that neither York nor his partner are quite clear on what after can be, and they're on an exciting journey to find out where things are going to take them. Why not get along for the ride? For Monocle in Ljubljana, I'm Guy Delaunay. Thank you very much to Guy. Well, from an award-winning restaurant to award-winning wine. English wine hasn't always had the best reputation, but Hattingley Valley set out to change that, with their first release in 2013 winning a decanter gold medal. They quickly established themselves as one of the UK's most successful wineries, winning over 160 medals. Now, to celebrate their 10-year anniversary, Hattingley Valley have released a limited edition Magnum, the first reserve based on their 2016 vintage. And if you want to have a look at it, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, you can see it on my Instagram account. That's Georgina C. Godwin uh, at Instagram. So, joining me in the studio is the marketing manager, who's Carly Bassett, and Chris Unger, who's the sales and marketing director at Hattingley Valley Wine. Welcome to both of you. So lovely to have you and your very tasty-looking magnum here. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Uh, well, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do, uh, while perhaps you talk to us about the history of, of Hattingley Valley, uh, uh, Chris, is to 
open the bottle because I really do think we need to be quaffing while we do this. Oh, good sound. Okay, I think let's have a little pour. Very nice. Okay, and um, cheers, David. Let's have a let's have a little clink here. Clink. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, here is Tahasingli Valley, uh, and I'm going to take a sip. David, uh, Chris, tell us about the history. So, Haddingley Valley um, was part of a Dutch Sorry, farm. Sorry, I have to stop you. Oh. I have to stop you. That is absolutely delicious. <laughs> That's a good sign. That's oh, a good sign. that is such a nice, this nice wine. Great. This last night, I was reading about the ocean 600 meters deep that covered uh, uh, northern Europe, Britain, and the uh, northern European plain, uh, at the bottom of which... Uh, uh, little um, little microorganisms landed, which produced the chalk, which I'm now drinking. Yeah. God yeah. bless it's you for doing this. Yeah. A, anyway, sorry, carry on. <laughs> that's all right, no problems. Um, so, yeah, so Simon Robinson, uh, who's our chairman owner of the, of the business, he um, has 500 acres of land in, in Hampshire and heard a radio program actually in the, in the mid-2000s about viticulture in the UK and um, decided to diversify his farm and plant some some vineyards on his property. So we have we have two vineyards and that was in 2008. So uh, planted the vines or the first vineyard in Chalky Hills in 2008 and subsequently um, built the business from there. We, we built a winery which is a sustainable uh, eco-friendly winery literally as the first grapes coming in from the vineyards uh, were coming in in 2010. Um, with sparkling wine it takes a long time from producing it to being able to sell it so that's why we didn't have our first release until 2013 um, and then subsequently we've been growing from some I think our first harvest we had about uh, 30 tons come into the winery and just finishing the harvest this year we had our biggest ever harvest which was just under 700 tons um, now that's not a true uh, representation of the growth of the business because in England we have huge variations in the size of our harvests just because of the weather conditions we have but um, but we have grown um, mm. so so yeah and um, you know we're always looking at sort of new opportunities new countries to export uh, new products that, that Carly's um, worked on here um, and it's, it is the fastest and most exciting wine category, in my opinion, in the world. And I've been in wine all my life, um, and I've never experienced or felt anything that we're feeling with, with the industry at the moment. From I mean, the, this really is absolutely delicious. Um, t- tell us about how the company's grown and how the products have developed. We've really sort of grown uh, and experimented with lots of different products. Our, our kind of champion wine really is our classic reserve. Um, and we've experimented with lots of different uh, wines over the years and really grown um, into to different areas. So we actually produce still wines as well, which is quite rare, um, only in exceptional, in, in exceptional years. Um, and we have a fantastic... Um, dessert wine as well called Entice which is really popular so we're really just sort of experimenting with with different wines that we can make and we're sort of at the peril of the weather really every, yes. each year as to what goes on there so it's a very exciting place to be yeah and Chris what's the concept behind this limited edition magnum um, I think really it was about celebrating um, milestones in our business we are a young business uh, the the sparkling wine production, traditional method sparkling wine, have very long lead times. And, you know, we're just really coming out of our startup phase. So we're not like a tech company where you can go from nothing to an IPO in three years. We yeah. we have very long lead times. And I think it's it's really important to, to celebrate some of the, the milestones. And the, the vintage that this is based on, 2016, was a really 
unusual uh, harvest in that we we had very severe frosts at the beginning of the growing season. So frost is one of the the major issues we have in England and effectively it wiped out most of our crops. Um, So we had very, very small crop levels. And so we had a small amount and we basically didn't release our our regular range of wines, and so we had a little bit of fruit. So we thought we'd we'd make um, some magnums of the of the the classic uh, reserve that we have here, um, and I think it's nice because. The one constant in England with our growing conditions is there is no constant. Um, it's, it's one of, it, there's this huge variability. So you can look at a, a vintage like 2012 where the weather, we, it wasn't frost. It was just not enough sunshine, wet the whole summer. We didn't harvest any grapes to a year like last year, which was our hottest on record. Um, yields weren't particularly high. And then you can have everything else in, in between. So I think th- those marginal climates and those marginal conditions that we're operating in is what makes our wine sp- so special. And I think it's this is a really nice representation of that. And, you know, I think a, an extension of what we've done, this is the first time we've done a special release like this, but um, Carly and I are, are talking about some some other wines that we're holding back. Um, this is a bit of a pre-sell, but, yeah, for the future, we, we'll do some museum releases of, of some of our other icon mm. wines. But I think because we are a young industry, and, you know, particularly at Hattingley, we try and do things a little bit differently we're always going to be trying different things, and, and you know, we're, from from the way we market online to the way our brand looks, um, to how we want would like our consumers to, to to drink the wines, and not do the champagne model. We're very not trying much trying not to be champagne. We're very much trying to be Hattingley Valley, mm. um, and you know, kind of I guess in a way do things a little bit differently. And yeah. I think that's that's part of why why we're doing it. Carly, tell us about that design because it is beautiful, beautiful looking. Thank you. Um, yeah, the, the butterfly is really synonymous with our brand. So you'll see the, the butterfly everywhere um, on our barrels, even in the, at the winery. Um, to when you open the bottle, there's there's a peel, peel and reveal. There's loads of butterflies on the inside of the foil. Um, but the oh, butterfly, <laughs> yeah, it's really lovely. Um, and obviously now we've done the, this butterfly label, which I just thought was, was so important to do as a celebration of our wine. Um, but the silver wash flotillary butterfly was found in our... Um, vineyards so we had um lots of surveys done simon had lots of surveys done at the beginning to see the best possible place for a vineyard on his land um and they found the silver wash flotillary butterfly um and so it's it's a sign of really rich biodiversity it's very common in uh europe but not in hampshire so to have this was just such a sign of you know an amazing, an amazing space, really. So that's why the butterfly has stuck with us. And so. I think, I think the butterfly, you know, it's an icon as well. There's oh. not many brands, English brands out there that have a very strong icon. So in a way, we wouldn't be disappointed if people go, oh, I want that butterfly wine. If they go to a, a, a shelf and any of the retailers are working with, oh, it's the butterfly wine. So having a strong icon. And I think most people love butterflies. They're not a, they're not a mm. creature that people don't generally love. So. And speaking about retailers, where can one pick a bottle up? Uh, so, I mean, for the for the 10-year release magnum we have here, it was super limited release. So it's just uh, direct to consumer via our website. But our, our wines are available uh, in Waitrose, Marks & Spencers um, throughout the UK um, and internationally as well. So, I mean, we, we, we're exporting 
nearly 25 to 30% of our, our, our volume. So I think we're active in about sort of 12 countries. So um, but yeah, Waitrose is, is probably the, the major retailer for, okay. for our branded. I'm going to have to end this now because oh. I can see that Mariella behind the glass is absolutely scowling at me because she's <laughs> desperate to <laughs> taste. Yeah, 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 also, I need a top up. So um, <laughs> yeah. thank it's you so way. much to Chris Unger and to Carly Bassett and of course to David Badanis. That's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our producer and studio engineer, the very impatient Mariella Bevan. Uh, And uh, thanks, of course, to you for listening. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye.